Genesis 32, and we'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Hear once again the word of our God. And Jacob went out on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's host. And he called the name of that place Hanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, under the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. Thy servant Jacob saith thus, I have journeyed with Laban, and have stayed there until now. And I have oxen, and asses, flocks, and manservants, and women servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I may find grace in thy sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to thy brother Esau, and also he cometh to thee, and four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. And he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks, and herds, and the camels into two bands, and said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which says unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good. And make thy seed as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Amen. And may the Lord add to us this evening the blessing of his word. Before we take up this text, beloved, I'd remind you that we are here witnessing Jacob, a believer, a plain-hearted man in crisis. But really what's striking about this text, as we think about it and seek to apply it to ourselves, is this is one of those moments where you see the man functioning on what he really believes. You see a man who, as it were, has this desert blast of affliction take away all of those things that he may think or may feel that have no deep root. In other words, we're watching the man in this moment, in this crisis, as he depends upon that which is firm, that which he knows to be true, that which he sees is true in the inmost part of his being. That's the Jacob that we see in our text this evening, a man who in this crisis must deal in reality. And as we saw last Lord's, sorry, last midweek rather, as Jacob comes to this crisis, as he deals with the real and substantial things that he knows, Friend, you remember that he approaches God in covenant. This is how Jacob deals with this crisis. He does not go to God absolute, the God who is gracious, the God who is good, even to the heathen. He goes to the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God, as he says here, of Jacob. The one who promised him the very selfsame things that he promised his fathers. He goes to a God whom he knows 
with whom he has a covenant interest. And beloved, as we look at this text, we find then really the first principle, the first step to understand the theophany. That moment where, of course, you find Jacob wrestling with a special manifestation of God's presence. Now, I said to you before that why we're looking at this context is to understand the importance, the significance of the way in which God appears to Jacob. Well, friend, remembering that here Jacob is looking to a covenant God helps us understand that moment. And hopefully we'll see that with the Lord's help in the time to come. We're seeing then a man who is relying upon that which is real. And that thing that he relies upon is that covenant that God has made with him. Now, below, as we turn to verse 9, the remainder of verse 9, and into the 10th verse as well, we find the man, as he looks to the covenant, he looks to the covenant, and he has very specific things in mind. You remember in the ninth verse, he tells us precisely what the Lord has said. He says, The Lord which says unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. Now you notice that there are two aspects to what Jacob here cites. He cites, first of all, a precept, a command, return, return unto thy country and to thy kindred. But then you notice that second component, and that second component is crucial. It's the promise, and I will deal well with thee. And really, as you look at this text, that final part, that last piece that God has revealed to Jacob back in chapter 31, this promise that God would take him back to this land and deal well with him there, that really is the principal focus of this prayer. Now, why do I say that? I want you to look down with me just to verse 12. You'll notice that Jacob makes a petition in verse 11, and then in the 12th verse, note this. And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good. In the Hebrew, the words are, atov emech, which is the very same thing that you find in our text in verse 9. He's citing principally this promise. God will deal well with me. Now, as you see Jacob dealing with this, what's striking is what you have then in the 10th verse. God has promised. He has promised that he will do good to our patriarch. But then the patriarch turns his attention elsewhere. I am not worthy, he says, of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Jacob moves away from the covenant. Jacob cites the promise that God has made, but then he moves to himself. And what's striking is what he says here. He says here, he's not worthy the least of all the mercies and of all the truth. The word truth there really is the word elsewhere translated faithfulness. In fact, it's best to understand it that way as you see what follows in the text. It really could read, and of all the faithfulness which thou hast done unto thy servant. Here's what Jacob is saying. As he looks at himself, he sees himself unworthy of all of the mercies and of all of the faithfulness that he's already been shown by the Lord. And then in the third line, that last part of the tenth verse, he adds, For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. See what the patriarch is doing. He takes himself in this moment 
after he's just divided all that he has into these two bands. We read that just in the verses before. And he compares that moment with the moment that he first remembered crossing this river Jordan. That time whenever he fled initially, 40 years ago, before he was alone. The sense is he really had nothing more than the clothes on his back, the staff in his hand. Now as he reflects, he sees that the Lord has given him great increase. The Lord has blessed him. Now as we look at these two verses, the last part of the ninth verse and all of verse 10, the question is, how, how is the patriarch thinking? What is the connection between these ideas? Now as you look at this text, as I've already said to you, Jacob is drawing down on a promise that God had made to him in the, in the 31st chapter, verse 13. There God has told Jacob, you remember, go back to your kindred, go back to your country, and the Lord indeed would do well with him there. But what's striking is, as you leave the end of that ninth verse, the patriarch does not immediately fall to petition. He doesn't make a request in verse 10. That's striking. In fact, whenever you look at this text, when you come to verse 10, what you find is the patriarch is thinking primarily about the mercy and the faithfulness that he has already been shown by the Lord. And then secondly, he's also mindful of the unworthiness of himself for those mercies that he's already received. He's not talking about an unworthiness that will be ascribed to himself if the Lord does graciously, deals graciously with him in the time to come. He's saying the very mercies that I'm reflecting on, the least of them I'm not worthy of. That's the patriarch's focus. He takes up the covenant that God has made, the promise that God has made specifically to Jacob, and he doesn't base a single petition on it. Not at first. Before he makes use of the promise and petition, he cites God's faithfulness and the freeness of his grace. Now, before we go any further, I think it's important for us just to see how profound this moment is. To remember what the patriarch is facing. We read the scriptures so shallowly, don't we? We forget that this is a real record of the real experiences of God's people. So here's Jacob's experience. Jacob literally has divided his family in hopes that not all, would do, not all would be destroyed. This is perhaps the most excruciating thing that a father, that a husband could go through on this side of the grave. You remember, we're told here Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. That's a Hebrewism simply to say that the man was shaken to the core. He divides his family, he divides all that he has into two bands. Why? If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. Jacob's assumption is he's going to lose. In fact, he may lose all. And he prepares, he prepares under this horror for incredible loss. I told you that this is a man in crisis. And beloved, that's so crucial when we come to this prayer, to remember. This is the cry of a man who's under incredible duress. A man, as I've said to you already, who is plain-hearted. This is the cry of a man in crisis who preferred interest in God's covenant to all of the world. And so what do we learn? What do we see in this text? 
In Jacob, beloved, we find here that the believer applies God's promise with humility. The believer applies God's promise with humility. And I want us to see that under the three headings that come to us directly from these, from these two verses. The promise that Jacob has in view first, the provision that Jacob has already been, already seen, and then finally, also there, the great profession that the patriarch makes. As we look at this text, then we come to that ninth verse and the promise that Jacob primarily has in view. As you look at that text, you'll find, again, that the Lord is simply telling him, giving him, first of all, that command, go, return, return to that country from which you've been in exile, and I will deal well with thee. What's striking is that promise that Jacob rests upon here is exceedingly broad. It is a very general promise that God has given the patriarch. I will deal well with thee. And you remember that really what the Lord God is saying is, in that moment, that he, is, he intends to fulfill that which he had promised Jacob 40 years ago when Jacob was at Bethel. Now let me just read to you what that promise was. You'll find it in Genesis 28. There at Bethel, Jacob is promised, I, says the Lord, am with thee and will keep thee in all the places whither thou goest and will bring thee again into this land, for I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of. You see what the Lord God has promised. He's saying, now is the time that I will fulfill what I promised to you four decades ago. But what did he promise Jacob four decades ago at Bethel? As you look at that text, friend, you need to keep in mind, as we said before, that when you look at these covenant promises, you need to recognize at its core, at its core, it is not about land and it's not about progeny. At its core, it is about who can claim God as their God. And so if the Lord says, I will undertake to do thee good, friend, that's simply a short form, if you like, of what God had promised all, all along to his people, all the way back to Genesis 15, implied even in Genesis 12. The Lord God himself would be the exceeding great reward, the shield of his own. In short, friend, the promise that is given to us in this text really in substance is simply this. I will be a God unto thee. Self-same promise Abraham has given in Genesis 17. That's the promise that Jacob relies upon. A promise in which God says in a very general way, but no less real, I will provide for your real good. I will secure for you that which is truly for your joy and truly for your comfort. A friend, as you look at this text and you see the breadth, you see how general this promise is. Nevertheless, the patriarch in this moment when all things seem to be, as it were, a hair's breadth away from destruction, he rests upon this as a sufficient promise. This is sufficient for the, for the patriarch under this crisis. When he, it may be, stands to lose all. When he thinks, trembles at the thought that he may lose all. He nevertheless takes hold of this promise as a sufficient refuge. Friend, what you see here is a believer who is content with the promise that God has given 
He's content. The patriarch doesn't try to get some other promise. He doesn't sue for some greater comfort or greater consolation. He cites this, and this is enough for him to build a whole petition from it. And beloved, the believer in every age is the same. See the contentment of the believer. The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. The lions are fallen unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Friend, when the believer looks at the promise that God has made, which again, in substance, is identical to everything that Jacob here relies upon, namely that the Lord Jehovah would be his God, would secure for him all that was necessary for him, truly necessary for his good and for his real good. Well, friend, the believer today has the self-same promise from the self-same God. And as the psalmist reflects on this, he says this very pointedly, that is sufficient for him. Thou maintainest my lot. The idea is he's quite content. If this is the promise that this God is his God, whatever happens and in, this, in any stage of his life, he can be content with this promise. He can be content with the fact that the Lord is the portion of his inheritance. That the Lord Jehovah is his exceeding great reward. And friend, this is the choice of believers, is it not? We sing it in Psalm 119. Thou my sure portion art alone, which I did choose, O Lord. You see, beloved, as you look at this text, you find that the man here is quite content with what God has promised. He'd need nothing else, requires nothing else from the hand of God to then make suit and plead for more mercy. And you see, beloved, this speaks, of a, this speaks of a man who is quite content with having God himself as his God. God himself as his portion. It's the righteous man's cry of Psalm 17. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. That is enough for him. That is enough for him. You see, friend, as you look at this text, remembering that this is really Jacob resting upon the substance of the covenant of grace. You find a man who really believes that to possess all but not have God is to possess nothing. But to possess nothing but God is really to have all. To possess all but not God is to have nothing. But possess nothing but God, is to have all. Jacob rests in the idea that this God is his God, who has promised that he will be a God unto him, secure his real and his everlasting good. Of course, the question as we look at this patriarch as an exemplar, the question for us is, is the covenant which God promises to the soul, namely that covenant that says, I will be your God and you shall be my people, Is that sufficient for you? Can you rest your life upon it? Can you rest the livelihood of your families upon it? Can you entrust yourself entirely to God through it? Jacob certainly does. But that brings us then to that second point. If that's the promise, 
in short form, namely that God will be his God even in this land, even in this crisis. Note how the patriarch reasons. You find again in the 10th verse the words, The mercies, all the truth, which thou hast showed unto thy servant. For with my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Before he, before he takes hold of this promise that God has made, before, as it were, he makes a holy argument with God, pleading for this mercy, he cites, as I said to you before, the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness that he has already been shown. This is where the patriarch begins. Yes, he takes hold of the covenant promise. And he'll make use of it in the the 11th and 12th verses. But before he comes to its use, he cites the faithfulness that he's already been shown. In fact, that's why it's so important, I think, to see the text as it is telling us here. That here Jacob minds all of the faithfulness which the Lord has done unto him. You see, he begins with thanks, and that thanks then becomes preparation for his petition. And beloved, the believer does the same today. In thanksgiving, the believer stirs faith to reflect on God's goodness. A friend, when you look at this text, there are so many other texts of Scripture that come to mind, aren't there? Here you find the patriarch looking back on God's faithfulness to him in this moment of incredible crisis. I mean, think just for a moment why it's so significant that the patriarch here says that he's now two bands. Why is he two bands? He's two bands because he's divided all that he has into these two companies in face of what is likely to be an attack from Esau. What is very much in front of the patriarch at this moment is the idea that God has given him all of these things even though all of these things have been separated because Jacob expects destruction to come in the morning. As Jacob looks at all that God has given him, even in the face of this crisis, he reflects with thanksgiving. It's a staggering thing. It's hard to find an analogy for this moment, isn't it? The man is taking inventory. The man is taking inventory as it were almost before battle. But as he takes inventory, he never allows his mind to be so consumed with the coming crisis. First, he renders thanks to God for what he's received. You see that in Jacob here. But see, beloved, how this is so very common to the Christian. Take, Take another crisis of faith, not terribly unlike ours. Take what you have in Psalm 77. There the psalmist says, I remembered God and was troubled. Thou holdest mine eyes waking, but but this is mine infirmity, he says. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. Calvin, I think very helpfully in Psalm 77, tells us that while the believer may look even to the oracles of God, to the history of God's dealings with his people of the past, really the text has in view that he begins with himself. He begins by reflecting on the mercies that he's already received. And why would he do that? Why does Jacob begin here? Why does he begin? Why doesn't he immediately launch into petition? Well, friend, what you see here is a man who is setting before faith a solid reflection on how God has shown him goodness already. 
Concretely, he's making an argument that if God has been faithful, certainly he is worthy of all of our trust. And friend, the believer has to do the same today. Calvin puts it this way. He says, the very best method in order to obtain relief in trouble when we are about to faint under it is to call to mind the former loving kindnesses received. We should remember also how often he has assisted those that served him and improved the truth for our own benefit. It's precisely what you see in this text. Friend, take again Jacob's experience in this moment. The man is prepared, perhaps, to lose everything. This is a man, regardless of whether or not we think he was rightly afraid. This is a man, nevertheless, who was afraid. This is a man who is trembling to the core. And yet, what does he do? He takes inventory, as it were, on all of God's mercies. And he uses those to set before faith a solid argument. That this God who has done good in the past, this God is certainly worthy of all of our trust. Friend, as you look at this text, what you find here is a man who is certainly meditating. Meditating carefully on his life. And he's meditating always, always tying temporal things back to the Lord. I mean, beloved, he doesn't reason He doesn't reason by going back to Genesis 30 and 31 and and, and say that by his own cunning, by his own wit, he secured all the wealth that he now sees in front of him. He says, any blessing that's in front of me, it is from the Lord alone. Beloved, this is a man who's a spiritual man. A man who can take even temporal things for which he has labored for decades to get and still say all of these things are only from the Lord. And then, in a moment of crisis, because he knows these things are from God, he can say these are tokens of the Lord's faithfulness to me. But we don't use, we don't use mercies received in the course of a day, often like Jacob does here. Do we? We see here a man who takes even the least of God's mercies. And he says, here too I find a token of God's loving kindness. Here I find his faithfulness. Thirdly and finally, beloved, you find here that not only does Jacob reflect on the provision that God has given him, you find an incredible profession. He says here, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant." Again, beloved, I need to remind you that the crisis of this text is so potent. It should be palpable to us. Here is a father. Here is a husband. Here is a man who has labored to come back to his home after four decades in exile. And as he reflects on all of these things, friend, note, note how he begins to make his, his dealings with God. I am not worthy of the least of these. I'm not worthy of the least of these things that are before me. Some would say that this could be very much the apex of Jacob's life. 
What's striking is here in this moment, you have the patriarch looking at all of these things in front of him and saying, not even the least of these things should I have received. But let me, let me put it to you another way. In light of this crisis, beloved, what do we find? In light of the fact that, that Esau is coming and Jacob is going to make a petition to God that God would spare him and all of his in face of this perhaps oncoming attack, when Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of these things, friend, what is he saying if all of those things are taken away? He's saying very pointedly, I cannot complain if the Lord takes it. I was not worthy for the least of it anyhow. I was not worthy for the least of it. And so how could I complain if all the Lord takes back? Friend, what you see here is a man who is drained of a sense of entitlement, even to the least of the Lord's goodness to him. And what you find here then, beloved, as you, as you see the believer in action, in crisis, you find that the believer minds his unworthiness for all mercy, past and future. You see this, friend, you see a man who sees, first of all, the lowliness of himself. What's striking is Jacob doesn't cry, judge me, O God, according to my righteousness and according to my integrity that is in me. The psalmist does in Psalm 7. Again, you don't, find the, you don't find Jacob crying this, Remove from me the reproach and contempt, for I have kept thy testimonies. Again, the psalmist, Psalm 119. Now those are legitimate cries in their own context. But that's not what Jacob cries here. Yes, Esau is a man of the world. We've already seen that. And Jacob was a man who longed to be among the covenant people of God, who longed to have God as his God. But he doesn't even cite that longing. And he doesn't even cite the distance between himself and Esau spiritually. He begins with this. He says, I am a lowly man. I am an unworthy man. Striking here is you find a man who is very conscious he's dealing with God. And not with other men. The position that you have in this text is so very similar to what you have in Psalm 143. Enter not into judgment with thy servant, for in thy sight shall no man living be justified. If I am to produce one meritorious act from my life to secure these things from the oncoming destruction, there is nothing that I could produce. I am not worthy of the least. I have not merited any favor from God. This is how Jacob reasons with the Lord. He begins with his own lowliness. What's striking, beloved, as you look at this text, you find a man who is saying that he is not worthy of these things in spite of his great affections for God. In spite of this great heart that Jacob had when Esau certainly lacked it. In spite of the sincerity that Jacob had when Esau had none. He doesn't cite any of those things to commend himself to the Lord. He doesn't cite his patience that he endured with a father who would have rejected him, Laban, who time and time again deceived him. He doesn't even cite this excellent prayer, one of the, one of the most striking prayers in all of Scripture, as somehow meriting something with God. Fundamentally, in his own mind before the Lord, he is unworthy. 
of the least. Friend, what you find then, secondly too, is you find a man then that is stressing the freeness of God's mercy. He's a man who says that if I have received any grace, it is grace for grace that I've received. To quote John the Baptist. You find here the man, the man attributes his life with God not to his own cunning, not to his affections, not to his afflictions, nothing. Nothing but to the free and liberal dealings God has had with him. When Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least, he's saying, if I have received good from God's hand, it is only because of the freeness of God's mercy. Or you remember, beloved, you remember how the patriarch labored in Laban's household. You remember how patiently he dealt with deception. How earnestly he worked. But he cites none of that here. These things that are in front of him that may be taken away from him in the morning. He says, all of these things I've only received from God's freeness. Not my ingenuity, not my labor. God's free mercy. What you find here is a man who describes himself as a servant. A servant that's certainly mindful. Certainly of that same disposition that you read of in Luke 17. A servant who would say, when you have done all those things which are commanded of you, he says, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. You see, he's merited nothing. If he's obeyed God at all, it's not that he's commendable in anything. It's simply this, that he has done his duty. But even there, here the patriarch reminds us, even the least mercy he's unworthy of. But then finally, you see here a man who puts a high premium on the mercies that God has given. Striking here, he says, not the least, not the least of those good things that he's received is he worthy of. Not even the breath that he draws then. Not the water that he tastes. Not even the sun that warms him. Not the shade that refreshes him. He says, I am genuinely unworthy of the least. He's a man who will not forget all of the Lord's benefits. And he takes inventory, spiritual and temporal, and he says, none of these things have I deserved. Not one. See, brother, what you look here, what you find here, is a man who is suing God for mercy, seeking God's grace at the throne of grace. But he comes as lowly a beggar could. He has no merit of his own. Nothing in him, as it were, could coerce mercy from heaven. I am not worthy of the least of those mercies that I've already received. And beloved, by entailment, of course, that leads us to the conclusion Jacob certainly is not worthy in his own eyes of the mercy that now he's going to request in the verses that follow. What do we find here? Well, beloved, we find here an example, don't we? An example, as the apostle says, of those who through faith and patience inherited the promise. Well, if he's an example, note what the apostle says of such ones. He says, be not slothful, but be followers of them. 
This is a paradigm then. As the man seeks God in this way, as he, as he sets before the Lord his own disposition, well, friend, you and I are supposed to emulate that. This is not merely historical curiosity. This is obligation upon any who would wrestle with the Lord to write. And so there are three marks in the text of those who are like Jacob. First of all, like Jacob, they have a high regard for the promise that God has given. It's not a small thing that they have promises that they could appropriate to themselves. This is something they give themselves to and meditate much upon. That's the first mark. The promises of God for them are the most precious things that they can reflect upon. That God would be their God. That he would be their portion and their lot. Exceeding great reward. But secondly, you find here, of course, a man who is marked with humility. But how can you read this text? A man of over, over fourscore years old. A man who has walked with the Lord. A man who has chosen to take up residence with the people of God instead of the world. Eighty years, almost ninety years of walking with God. This is his assessment of all that God has done with him. This is his assessment. I am not worthy of the least. Not worthy of the least mercy. Not even my best moment, says Jacob, has earned for me, merited for me, even the least of God's goodnesses. Not the least. Friend, those who appropriate the promises of God are right begin here. They're mindful that they only receive grace for grace. If they receive grace at all. But then thirdly, you find a mark of a man in this text who certainly has the highest regard for any mercy given. He does not hold in contempt the least of God's goodnesses toward him. Temporal or spiritual, the man takes careful note and says these things are only from the free grace of God. They're precious to him. He refuses to forget all of the Lord's benefits bestowed upon him. And so the question, of course, for us is, well, would we deal with God in this way? Friend, this is a text that shows us, of course, the God who is there. And sets before us the pattern of how you and I are supposed to come before him. Here is a man in crisis. Here's a man that seemed that, according to his own estimation, is looking at certain and almost sudden destruction. And this is how he deals with God. Beloved, this is how you and I are called to deal with the same God from the same covenant. If that's the case, then our obligation, first of all, is to meditate much. We're not a meditating people, are we? Uh, we are a consuming people. Uh, our culture is a culture that certainly takes in much, but digests very little. Not so Jacob. He meditates much on the promise of God. He meditates much on his life, saying, here I see the hand and faithfulness of God. Even the least mercy, says Jacob, I can take, I can trace back to the Lord. Well, that only comes with serious meditation. This is not something you can call up on a deathbed on a sudden. 
This kind of work that Jacob is doing is not something that is fitted for the crisis or the moment of crisis alone. This demonstrates a man who took the mercies God has given in the moment they were given and meditated deeply on how he saw here the hand of God's faithfulness toward him. The believer must do the same now. If he's going to die comfortably, if he's going to come into a crisis like this, and he's going to do so as Jacob has done so, he must now be meditating. He must now be mindful, as Jacob was. Certainly, beloved, you and I are called to pray for this kind of faith. The the cry, Lord, increase our faith, should certainly come after reading, thinking on this text. But even more, perhaps, to the point for this evening. Beloved, are we not called to labor? Are we not called to strive? To be able to make the same profession that Jacob does here. To really see ourselves from the heart as unworthy of the least of God's goodnesses towards us. Again, beloved, this is not something that the flesh will delight in. To say, I am not worthy of the least of God's mercies is something that strikes against our native pride. Something that is at variance with the old man, absolutely. Something that you and I cannot do lightly. Something that will require great amounts of prayer. Will require great earnestness and zeal on our part just to overcome self, to be able to make from the heart this, this confession. The soul that says this is an easy thing has never tried it. The soul that says this is something I can do in a moment obviously has never engaged in the work in the first place. To do this work, beloved, you and I are, must be on our knees, must be meditating, must be a people who reflect on the greatness of God's mercies, esteeming even the least of them far more than we deserve, that we might then wrestle with God as we ought. May the Lord help us to do so. Amen.